Welcome to Talking Teaching. This podcast brings forth discussions about effective classroom practice and the latest in educational thinking. Leading educational thinkers from around the world join the Faculty of Education to share their insights and perspectives. I'm Dr. Sophie Special, your host for Talking Teaching. Talking Teaching would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we produce and broadcast. We pay respect to Elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians listening. We also acknowledge the place of Indigenous knowledges at the university and in education. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women have been pillars in their communities and have made invaluable contributions to their families, the broader society and education. These women are mothers, their grandmothers, aunties, sisters and daughters, but many go unacknowledged, especially those that have made amazing contributions to school and in education. In this episode of Talking Teaching, we talk with three Indigenous teachers and educators who are doing wonderful things within each of their own communities and beyond. Our guests, Rosie Payne, Kylie Captain, and Melita Hogarth, are three guests that come with different histories from different parts of Australia. And they are all making inspiring contributions to education across Australia. They talk about their families, their culture, what education means to them, and importantly, their community. But most importantly, the importance of teachers and education and how we can change schooling for the better and how we must empower and celebrate other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women in education. My name is Rosie Payne. I'm a proud Noongar Yamaji Wongatha woman. Um, I live in Perth, West Australia. I am currently a deputy principal at a primary school. I grew up in a remote community, an Aboriginal community called Cosmo Newbury, so it's about a thousand kilometres northeast of Perth. About 200 people in the community. My family um, have a, a very strong connection to that, that country. So our school just has just over 500 students. Uh, we're relatively a smaller school in, in the area that we're in. We started with about 280 students and in the four years that we've been open have grown to just over 500. And um, our school is predominantly, um, we've got FIFO families, so people that fly in and out, um, to mining jobs, we have young families, we have a very small population of Aboriginal students in our school. Now, I am the first person um, that has got to this point in terms of finishing high school, going through university, being in the position that I am. My grandparents are part of the stolen generation. My grandmother was uh, stolen from her family at the age of six years old, so in terms of having that voice and being able to um, have a say in, the, in the, the laws and the things that govern what you do as an Aboriginal person is really powerful. And I've been able to have conversations with people and, and use my voice in spaces that, that my, even my parents weren't able to do. I work amongst some very strong allies that um, you know not only advocate for my voice but 
they they sit and listen and they really um, being an ally and and acknowledging the voice is all about action. Are you able to, if you will, talk and tell us a little more about your grandmother and her Mm. experiences and the impact that that has had on your family? So my grandmother, she was born um, under what's called an Ilkawara tree. It's a healing tree out in the great um, Victoria Desert. She was born under there and um, missionaries uh, were travelling through on their way to um, a mission in the Northern Territory and saw her and her younger brother and went to the next um, town and alerted the authorities that there were these two children out in in the desert that needed to be taken into a mission. So for a a week or so after, um, they were trying to track them down and and find them, and my great-grandmother would cover my grandmother with um, different things to to make her look darker or to to, to camouflage her, and eventually um, they did take her she was six years old and they took her and her younger brother her brother was four at the time and took them into the nearest town and put them into a jail and left uh, her in there for a week while they gathered up more children and then took her to a mission where uh, they taught Aboriginal people skills so they could serve a non-Aboriginal family. So she learned how to sew, she learned how to clean, you know, cook, all those things. Um, she met my grandfather there who was learning how to be a station hand, learning how to deal with horses, and those are the skills that they learnt in there as well as um, religion and, you know, speaking English so she wasn't allowed to speak her language, she couldn't see her family. And at that time you had to get permission to... Uh, get married so she had to write to AO Neville to get um, permission to marry my grandfather and they married and then they got hired out to a non-Aboriginal family where they both worked as you know uh, working in the kitchen and also my grandfather working on on the property so then as my grandmother got older um, and had her own children which includes my father they went back out to the community that my grandmother was born and rebuilt it so um most of my family still live out there and, you know, run the store and run the office and run the school and that sort of thing. So we've built, gone back and sort of turned that into a positive um, community for our family to, to live in. Thank you for sharing that. What sort of impact does that have for you? Oh, it's completely distressing. And as we got older, she gave us more details and some more of the sort of harrowing details about it and how it impacted her. And she remembered it so clearly every sort of step of the way. And you can tell how much that trauma sort of stuck with her, um, you know, impacted her and, and the way in which she parented her own children, including my father. So she always was fearful and sort of distrustful of um, non-Aboriginal people Um and, you know, this, the systems that we, that we have in, in place and um, in government to try to support Aboriginal people, she was always wary of those as well. So, But, you know, one of, the, one of the biggest moments that I do remember was when I graduated from university and she attended, she was there at my graduation, and um, it was and my, and my father as well, and, and how much pride and everything that they had in seeing me do that, hopefully... I can carry that that voice of what what she's been through um, into the future. You're doing incredible work for First Nations people. Being a teacher yourself and being able to make a difference is the best job that we can do, right? Yeah, and I think as well it's about having you know First Nations voices at all, at all tables. So you know, as a 
deputy principal, I'm one of a very small handful in West Australia that are First Nations. Right. So, um, you know, while we are growing in our numbers, having an Aboriginal voice at, at those higher levels as well is just as important um, as well. So being asked to be on advisory panels like the one that I've been on with Melbourne University, having that voice at such a high level is really is important because there's perspectives that I may be able to add that they may, may be different to other people as well, you know, taking into account the lived experiences that I've had as a First Nations person, but, you know, my family as well. How are you bringing in the First Nations element to be authentic within your own school? When we started the school as a relatively new school, it was really about trying to connect the staff um, to the, the country that the school sits on. Who who are the traditional custodians? What are the song lines that are connected to this place? So that they had a sense of belonging to the area as well. So it began by us having an acknowledgement of country um, at, at, at our event and, and me starting by doing that first of all. But then as we've progressed through the, um, the years, teaching the students how to um, say the acknowledgement in the local language. And we do that at every event now and we have students get up, um, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, to come and do the acknowledgement in, in Noongar language, in the local language as well. If we don't have one now, people notice it. <laughs> they think, oh, we haven't gotten, had an hour acknowledgement yet. And having it really visual as well, having artwork up, having the, the language incorporated to a lot of different things. So our school factions, our sporting factions, uh, are all named after um, local plants in the area. Um, just trying to make it as, as a part of everything that we do. Do you think that that would be a useful thing for schools or uh, indeed all Australians to really learn the local language? Yeah, I think it's really important that we do incorporate the local language and, and to do that in a meaningful way. I certainly encourage people that want to take that on in their school to make contact with people, the local people, um, who speak that language, whether it's... Um, and if they can't source them to their own families and their school community, going to their local councils councils or their shires. And, and I always say the first port of call is really people that do their reconciliation action plans in, in councils. They have a committee mm. usually. So um, asking who they reach out to as well to connect with and trying to leverage off that as well. But definitely having um, a, you know a First Nations person to help guide how you implement that that language within your school or you know your education facility is really important how much do the languages vary from place to place i just came back from tasmania some of the words over there completely you know so far away from where i'm from some of the words although they don't mean the same thing they're said in the same way and they mean something different first nations believe that our song lines go from one side of the country to the other so in some way there's a connection throughout all those states and territories before they were states and territories because it was just all one land what are the song lines how does it work song lines are really about um the I suppose how things were, were formed and how they were created and how they connect from one thing to to another. If you go through a lot of the First Nations areas, there's there's always a story that connects to snakes. You know, there's a mm-hmm. snake that's made a certain connection, or um, you know, there's constellations that we all look at that, that share a similar story, um, and also things that guide us. So. Um, 
cautionary tales about things we shouldn't be doing and um, things we we want to encourage in, in terms of um, the values that we want to keep. So song loans are about connecting us back to country but also to each other. Um, and we have ones that talk about our land, but then we also have personal ones, you know, when people talk about their dreamings or their totems that they have as well. That's another sort of more individual one. So my grandmother, for example, her dreaming um, is the thorny devil. So there's a story that connects her to, to that animal um, and that totem. Coming back to you being a, an Aboriginal woman in leadership, what are the things that you hope for in the future and that you would like to see within all schools across Australia? I think this um, one of the one of the most important things that is that all sort of schools and education facilities acknowledge that they're on First Nations country and do so in by reflecting that in not only the way they operate but the way they present themselves as an education facility so it's wonderful when I go to a school and I see that they do have an acknowledgement or they do have artwork or they do have um, connections with the local community I think that that's a really important part of acknowledging First Nations people but then also having First Nations people in the governance of a school as well in terms of the school board or you know teachers or other staff that are within that system Having um, curriculum that reflects um, First Nations people, so how can you add to what you're doing by putting um, that addition of First Nations cultural language in, in that space? So mm. how, how can you enrich that experience for all students by having that lens of um, First Nations people with, embedded in it? I think that's really, really important. Where do you see the curriculum how is it going for us right now and, and what changes are needed? We have our cross-curriculum priority of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories, cultures and languages and I think that's a really important uh, change that we've got. We've got, um, you know, uh, AITSL have just put out their cultural responsiveness um, toolkit and, and resources to go with that and um, I was involved in advisory panels for those as well, so I know that they were done with First Nations people in consultation. But I think there is this obligation that we need to teach certain things as well. I think we just need to balance that with um, making sure that we give that First Nations perspective of how those things occurred in an age-appropriate way to, to make sure that, that our students understand that uh, there is a First Nations history as well. You know, think about how... It's impacted my family. How many families across Australia has it impacted and how how that has, you know, made them feel like they haven't got a voice, which, um, you know, we're trying to champion for now. So what would you say to, to everybody listening out there just as far as them championing? And how can they champion that too? I think the first thing is just... Um, busting all the myths around it and there's a lot of resources um, that, are, that are available through um, not only the Yes campaign but um, just going onto the Voice um, website and having a look at some of the information there about what it actually means, what this Voice will actually mean. I think people are fearful of how much this will impact them but then I do I say to them, look, the lived experiences of Aboriginal people, First Nations people, are that we had um, policies and things impacting us, and we had no idea that what would be the, the outcome of this. And 
we need to make sure that we move forward and give Aboriginal people a voice, give us a say in the things that impact us, to be a good ally, to be someone that um, promotes reconciliation. It takes action, and action is, is saying yes to this, and and everything that you do from now on, making sure that you acknowledge that First Nations people um, have a, a right in the way in which their their lives are governed. And it wasn't that long ago that we didn't have that right. I hear that you are an extraordinary artist. So I, I had been meaning to, to ask that. So if you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit about your artwork and um, and what it means to you. I learned how to paint from my father. I used to sit beside him as he was, you know, um, painting on canvas and listening to the stories that he would tell me, and that's something that I've kept with me. It's a great way to start conversations and to tell those stories. So every art, I'm doing it for someone, and and I'm having that conversation with them. It's such a way to educate people about First Nations people in a way in which they've never sort of experienced before because you're inviting them into a story, and when people become part of your narrative, they're much more connected to you and connected to your culture. So art has been an amazing experience for me with that in terms of being able to um, give me a voice to share the stories of myself and, and my family and to have those conversations with people about um, how they can continue to you know, um, aim for reconciliation and work towards reconciliation. Those mm-hmm. doors that I've had to push through um, and kick through to get into the, the, the spaces that I have have also been um, alongside people that have also um, have been strong allies, not only right. for me but for First Nations people. So, uh, yeah, the, what you do as an ally can have a, a lasting impact on First Nations people. So, yeah, walk alongside us. Walk alongside us and um, let's aim for reconciliation. I've absolutely loved this conversation. Thank you so much, Sophie. Hi, Kylie. Welcome to this episode of Talking Teaching. It's fantastic to have you here with us. My pleasure. Lovely to to yarn with you, Sophie. Really, really grateful to come and have have a yarn and connect. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, I am a proud Gamilaroi woman, so I'm a darling in from beautiful Darawal country today. Um, I was born and raised on Gadigal country, um, so, you know, my, my mob is from Walgut, a small country town in northwest New South Wales. I'm an author. Um, I've written two books now, currently working on book number three, and I'm the president of the Aboriginal Studies Association. I trained as a teacher. I've led Aboriginal education teams, and I'm a mum of two. In July, my babies will be 23 and 19, and I'm an auntie to many. Um, Absolutely love, you know, education. My life is one of freedom and choice thanks to the power of education, I'm the founding director of Dream Big Education, Wellbeing and Consulting, and I work with students, teachers, and, um, yeah, kind of doing lots of um, fun things right across the country now. So, oh, Thanks so much. Can you tell us a little bit about Dream Big? And, um, um, and then I'd love to talk to you more about your journey as a teacher and in education. I published my very first book at the end of 2021, and it's called Dream Big and Imagine the What If. It's a little bit of everything. It's 
it's it's my story of overcoming you know significant grief and adversity I've been through quite a quite a tough time dealt um, lots of really sad cards you know that um, lots of grief from losing my my birth mum my mum who raised me my beautiful nan a sister um, I spent a lot of my childhood in in hospital you know with chronic psoriasis I've got a life-threatening heart condition lots of sad things that have happened um but one thing that I've learned about myself and other people have, no- have noticed in me is my resilience and um, always wanting to kind of throw those cards back. And I managed to accomplish so much and uh, little things like or big things like buying my, my own house as a single mum, you know, whilst raising my, my two babies and studying to be a teacher and whilst working full time and raising my kids and travelling around the world and writing a book. And I thought throughout my journey I love to hear about people's um, stories of overcoming adversity so that was the what if like what if I was to share my story and what if it made a a difference for others I went through a a really tough time in my teens you know from things that I'm not really proud of you know drug use crime lots of all all that stuff but it was a teacher who believed in me told me that I was smart saw my potential and I think it was only fitting that I was to you know once I got through all of that to to give back and also become a teacher and hopefully be that teacher for inspire others. And do I recall that you are still in contact with this teacher as well? Absolutely. So book number two, I actually wrote with that teacher. So her name is Dr. Kathy Burgess. Um, she's an incredible woman. She, uh, you know, lectures at Sydney University, runs their Masters of Aboriginal Educational Leadership. Over the last 40 years, she's made a difference to many educators, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginals and students uh, right across this country. And her and I co-wrote my second book, and it's called Be That Teacher Who Makes a Difference and Lead Aboriginal Education for All Students. Um, Dr. Cathy and I now run masterclasses um, on the themes of that book. She's still an incredible mentor for me, and she's saying that she's now learning lots from me as well, which is a, a nice thing to, you know, all these years later. Someone like Cathy who is brave and says, I want to make a difference for First Nations. So how can people do it respectfully? I know that and we can all agree that our education has failed many in regards to Aboriginal histories and cultures and um, a lot of people, a lot of educators, our teachers are too scared. They don't know what to teach. I guess our, our culture is very complex. We're not saying, you know, go and learn one culture and go and teach it. It's it's quite diverse, as you know, um, with the many different nations and clans right around this beautiful country um, of ours. And the way that I connect with the educators is to take them on a journey of just providing them with the information, the knowledge that they may not have learned at school or at university. I teach them about our histories, our cultures. I touch on the sad stuff, you know, I build empathy. We turn that truth telling into a into passion and purpose. And what I find is that more and more educators are jumping on this journey of change. You know, we're only still around 3% of the population and we're not going to, you know, change things um, on our own. So I have this beautiful saying, let's never allow another cohort of students, whether they're Aboriginal or not, um, not to go through our education system, not knowing the truth of this country, but also the rich and beautiful culture. I um, have been working in Aboriginal identified positions, obviously grown up um, a proud Aboriginal woman, and I see my our community is still struggling. There's a lot that's happening, um, you know, to move us forward. I want to see change in my lifetime. You know, I remember yarning with one of my old uncles recently and he was saying, Barb, I don't think I'm going to see anything change in my lifetime because you might. Um, and I kind of just, it fired up this, you know, desire in my belly a little bit more to want to do more. I want him to see the changes as well as I'm desperate to see the change as well. 
When we talk about in schools and you were a teacher and you've got this enormous knowledge about the curriculum itself and what teachers are teaching, what, what do we need in our curriculum to really support our First Nations people? We haven't moved far enough. We're definitely moving, that's for sure. I'm seeing more and more things come through the curriculum um, that are incredible. Lots of truth-telling, lots of um, just strategies and ways to authentically teach our histories and our cultures for all stage levels, you know, whether you're in preschool or just starting out in kindergarten right through to, you know, year 12 and beyond. There's so much stuff in there now that wasn't there before and um, I'm grateful for that. I feel um, the content is there. Obviously, the more we move forward, there's there's lots of consultation that's happening um, with our communities as well to make sure that they're getting it right. So I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that um, our voices are finally being heard. Uh, even, you know, when I reflect back to when I was studying to do my teaching degree, and we were teaching first contacts for this whole term. I had all these beautiful lessons that I had trialled in other schools and it was from both perspectives, you know, the convicts, but also the impact on, on our people here. And I remember being really quickly shut down by my supervising teacher saying there'll be no mention of anything Aboriginal. Um, this is the experiences of the convicts. And yeah, I went home crying that day and singing, oh, I don't want to be a teacher anymore. If this is what it's, what it's like. And, you know, that wasn't that long ago, but it fired me up a little bit more just about the lack of understanding, the lack of empathy that's there. So I really feel that all teachers need to engage with Aboriginal um, yarns. But I think where, where I see the big change is by them listening, by them being heard as well, by them. Most recently I was working with, with teachers as part of my, my role with the department, but the real light bulb moments are when we sit and yarn and connect. And, you know, it's a way that our people connect. So unknowingly they're actually learning and engaging through Aboriginal ways of doing um, just by listening, by learning, by taking action. We don't have to always learn things out of a textbook. I think that we need to cater to the, to the educators as well. We might show them, we might tell them. We need to make sure that our teachers in schools have this um, opportunity to engage and listen to the voices of our people and hear firsthand. I was just reading the Welcome to Country a book by Marcy Langton and she was saying that storytelling is the original classroom. I grew up listening to stories, sitting around my mum and my nan and my aunties and it's how I was raised and they share their yarns about sitting and listening to the old people around the banks of the Namai River and it is, it's just there's something beautiful about story, um, both telling stories, listening to stories. I think we have a voice for a reason and um, it's definitely a big part of who we are as Aboriginal people and it makes a difference for everyone. Talking about the idea of language and people in Australia learning the native first people's language of where they are, not mm -hmm. just an acknowledgement, but actually learning language. Is it a way that we can move forward? I guess that depends on the local communities as well. Yes. Sometimes there's, there's certain protocols around whether they feel that's okay. Um, I know that here language is, is still a really tricky topic for a lot of our schools and our educators because some kids, a lot of the kids are off country. So they they might be here on Darrell country, um, but they're from Gamilaroi country or Yuan country and their families are saying, no, you can't go and learn that language. Like it's taboo almost, you know, you can't, mm. the teachers can't be teaching them that language. And 
language, I think we still have a lot of healing in, in regards to the language base. You know, I grew up with Aboriginal English words and certain um, language, you know, that I learned from my mum and my nan and they've all passed away now and I've got every opportunity to go and learn my Gamilaroi language now. You know, there's my cousins, you know, an incredible speaker and teacher and there's books and classes. But for me, I can't, I'm 42 now and I just can't bring myself to fully go and learn because it wasn't taught to me authentically the right way, you know, from my mum and my nan. So there's a lot of that healing that a lot of our mob, whilst we've got opportunities and a lot of people think, oh, okay, great language is available. Let's go and learn it. There's still a lot of sadness that comes because of everything like that trauma, the sadness because it was taken away from us. So I think that's uh, something to consider as well. Where can people go if they want to know more about your workshops and books? So it's just my website. So it's just Kylie Captain, so www or just kyliecaptain.com.au. I think I'm the only Kylie Captain. Um, so just, yeah, on there you'll find links to purchase uh, both my books, um, to purchase my Dream Big Journal. I've also created a, a really beautiful goal-setting journal as well. Kathy and I put up um, online masterclasses to, particularly for our remote educators. I always say have a yarn, whether it's with your Aboriginal Education Consultative Group or your local mob, you know, and everything that we bring is from our perspective. We share broadly from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspectives, from our knowledge and our role as, you know, leaders in the Aboriginal Studies Association, but we always give them the skills to go and localise their own content and work with their local communities because they're the ones, you know, that are, that are going to be there long term. The beauty is with them connecting with their local community. For a school who's listening to this as far as being really culturally respectful and moving forward with our First Nations people, what advice would you give a school? I think um, firstly, I think that schools should be visually, culturally safe. So really thinking about what their school looks like. Um, a lot of our mob do like to see these visuals, things like our flags, an acknowledgement of country, um, some local artwork, the stories, just to give us those little signs, you know, this is a place that we're welcome um, and these, this mob are, are trying um, because it wasn't that long ago that our, our mob weren't allowed into schools, you know, um, which was it's pretty sad. Um, relationships, obviously everything starts with relationships and sometimes it can be quite quite tough. It always comes from the, from the top down. I, I always encourage you, I work with a lot of principals too, to for them to be visible for the community and sometimes maybe stepping outside the school gates, you know, being out there to wave and to smile and try and connect with our families so they can they can feel their energy and their intention rather than just this formal person that they might see in their suits and being quite intimidated, getting down to the local footy, getting out to NAIDOC events. Um, every school that I go to, I'm always talking to them about coming, you know, to our survival day events, you know, on the 26th of January every year and to me, when our families and communities see educators and principals at these events, it kind of just gives us another level of confidence to say, do you know what, it's more than just that lip service. They're actually really showing up and, and trying to support us. Um, I think that all staff need to engage in authentic, um, you know, learning about our histories and our cultures to to really allow them to understand Um and importantly, um, you know, the way that we work with our Aboriginal learners as well, we've done a lot of work, you know, with Aboriginal pedagogies in the past and, you know, reflecting on the things that work for our Aboriginal kids and what works for Aboriginal students works for all students as well, relationships, mm. um, all those sorts of things that we know work for all kids. We say it all the time. That's 
actually really believing, having high expectations of the community, having high expectations of the families, of the kids. Schools need to be quite reflective of how important this work is. Is it, is it more than yeah. just the beautiful words that are on the on their strategic improvement plans or in their policies? It's about learning, unlearning and relearning and then thinking about their passion and purpose and why. I was just going to say as well, like reaching out more than just, you know, for NAIDOC Week and Reconciliation Week, like yes, showing, yes. getting our, like our, our families and communities are so have so much knowledge. Mm. So, you know, right throughout the year, inviting them in, allowing them to share their, like that's the stuff that I believe will, will help all schools. Thank you so much for joining us today. So much to continue to learn from you and, and so grateful to have you on the show today. Thank you. Oh, thank, thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. So lovely to yarn and connect with you all. Associate Professor Melita Hogarth is a Camilleroy woman and the Associate Dean Indigenous and Principal Research Fellow here at the Faculty of Education at the University of Melbourne. Welcome to Talking Teaching, Melita. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your work and what drew you here to the University of Melbourne? I told my parents from the age of five that I was going to university and that I was going to be a teacher. And from from then onwards, I don't think I've ever left the education space, always had a passion for wanting to know more about the world around me and to better understand the world and people. That kind of led to to my study of my PhD where I looked at the ways in which Indigenous people were represented within education policy and Indigenous education policy. Also understanding why there is such a gap in, in the educational attainment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students and non-Indigenous students and the ways in which they're trying to address this perceived gap. Was it an easy journey to get through school and to get to that level of PhD? I went straight from high school into university, did my bachelor degree went straight from that into my graduate diploma for um, as a classroom teacher, secondary trained, and then from there went straight into schools. And I didn't actually return to higher education and doing higher degree research until almost 20 years of being in the classroom. I started doing my master's and then I've ended up here at the University of Melbourne after spending um, two years at the University of Southern Queensland with Professor Tracy Bunder. Shout out to my titter there, the kind of mentorship and, and so forth that Tracy offered as, as my supervisor kept me in the space of wanting to know how to be a leader in this space and recognising that once I did complete my PhD, I was one of a very few, particularly in, in education, that are working in initial teacher education. The Australian Indigenous Lecturers in Teacher Education Association, I think there's less than 20 of us nationwide working within initial teacher education. Wow. 
And so you kind of get put into this position of, of leadership before you even get out of the gates of completing a PhD. So I recognise that and I have been blessed in the kind of sponsorship but also mentorship that I've received, particularly from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. What do you think that um, or what's the, what is the, the lessons or what are the, what's the wisdom that is coming from that small community given that there are so many messages and so many important things that need to happen within our country? As an Indigenous academic, um, we're constantly being pushed and pulled um, across the university as a whole um, because there are so few of us. And so um, we're, we're also got an extra layer in is for mob, but there's also that need of looking after yourself. And I think that's something that I, I am learning um, because of the fact that it is personal. I'm leading a national project um, here at the University of Melbourne, which is a collaboration between the Faculty of Education, the Indigenous Knowledge Institute and the Indigenous Studies Unit, um, along with Professor Marcia Langdon. We talk about it as a nation building project of looking at ways in which um, we can support classroom teachers and educators to embed Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories and cultures into their teaching and learning through a practical and sustained approach through um, both curriculum resources but also recognising that professional development and professional learning is just as important to um, build the confidence of teachers. Funding that has been made available through BHP, we have been able to call together an Indigenous Education Academic Roundtable just recently and in that we we had discussions around the kind of um, dilemmas, barriers, challenges but also successes that we're having within our institutions. What it raised really was that um, there is a critical shortage within initial teacher education of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, academics or even HDR students. And so we need to, to find ways in which to make this space more attractive. And that also reflects on the kind of critical shortage within the classroom as well. How do we do that? Through the kind of leadership role that I have within MGSE as the Associate Dean Indigenous and we have a divisional Indigenous development plan. We talk about um, addressing some of the, the workforce shortages. We talk about strategies in, in which to make education more attractive, not just from a marketing and, and comms kind of perspective, but actually making it culturally safe and inclusive and ensuring that the curriculum that's being shared here embeds Indigenous knowledge as well. We launched our Statement of Reconciliation to look at the ways in which we articulate our commitments 
to um, reconciliation. And within that, the, there was seven key commitments that were made. And I think the, the nice thing about that is that it's not just something that is put on the shoulders of Indigenous staff or students, but it's everyone's responsibility and everyone's business. It's inclusive of all the portfolios within the Faculty of Education and both um, academic and professional to ensure that um, everybody is working to ensure that Indigenous is centred and truly one of the, the foundational pillars of the faculty. Coming back to that notion of being culturally appropriate, what can schools, do you think, do as a starting point just to make sure that it's culturally appropriate? So what could schools actually do? I think it's, it's schools actually making um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories and cultures or indigeneity central to their strategic and operational plans. If it's not within that, then if we look at the Australian professional standards for teachers and for principals, it all talks about the need of including Indigenous knowledge and, and knowing your students and knowing the content. You need to be working towards that. So I think systems and schools and departments need to really look at the ways in which they're supporting um, staff to do this. Up until 2010, 2014, when um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories and cultures was embedded within the Australian curriculum, it was included if you wanted up until then. So many of us, myself included, did not learn about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's histories, cultures in our own schooling. Some of the, the people that we've been speaking to on the podcast have suggested that one thing that comes through all the time is, is connecting to elders or community. But I wonder how schools do that in an authentic way. There's a lot of complexity around it. If you think about um, school, I'm from Queensland. In Queensland, we've got remote, regional, very remote schools and, and particularly those that are remote is where we see teachers come in on a two, three year contract before they have enough points to actually transfer back to the cities. So the question really is, why would community want to get to know you if they know that you're only going to be there for two to three years? Why build those relationships? So the system itself isn't actually set up to support those sorts of um, community relations. The fact is the one constant at schools is the community. So therefore schools need to find ways in which to bring the community into the school and be remunerated appropriately. But then also be conscious of the ways in which they're building the capacity of the community members. Not tokenistic ways but actual ways in which they ensure that the community is an integral part of the school. Schools actually need to go outside the school gates. And so finding ways in which they can engage with community outside the school is just as important 
I mean, how many teachers, classroom teachers, actually go to community events on the weekend and engage with Indigenous community? They're the kind of challenges because sometimes it's seen as something that they have to do to their job rather than seeing it as part of their job and building that relationship to know their students, know their communities. We speak to Rosie Payne, who was in Western Australia. We speak to Kylie Captain, who's in New South Wales. They're doing outstanding things in education, but of course, talk to us and, and have very different views about things. So for example, um, just looking at language. So should we use language? Indigenous language, should we teach that, that within the school components? How do we do that? Quite simply by acknowledging that one size does not fit all. We're not an homogenised group. It's important to kind of acknowledge that language is, is personal. Language is part of Indigenous identity. Who are the right people? It's all illustrative of the kinds of complexities within our own history mm. and the various moving parts of of the kind of negotiations that Indigenous communities have to have on, on the daily basis. You know, schools go, OK, let's learn a language, let's learn an Indigenous language, but who is a speaker of that language? Um, how are they going to be remunerated for their time? Teachers and schools and, and policy itself goes, yes, let's do this, but no one is saying how it can be done. Mm -hmm. There's a, that's that true gap between um, what policy is saying and how it can be implemented. It's incredible the work that you do. Is there any final message that you would like to shout out to the listeners? I remember as a classroom teacher, I was constantly facing challenges and barriers the one and only Aboriginal teacher within the school. I remember, you know, working within higher education and being one of very few Indigenous academics working in the space. So my, my work is merely just one part of a very small part within a colossal amount of work that's being undertaken by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. I'm just lucky in the sense that most of my mentors and, and colleagues, um, I've had opportunity to work alongside and um, that a lot of this work can't be completed as an individual and, and that's not that's not of espousing our expertise and, and so forth. I, I prefer to see myself as part of the collective. I think Nanga itself, it is a massive project. It has many challenges in front of it in that we were constantly having to bring all teachers, schools, um, educators alongside to understand the importance and why Indigenous knowledge needs to be within their teaching and learning. Because if it was easy, it would have been done. And we wouldn't be 10 to 14 years after the Australian curriculum going, um, how come 
it hasn't been taken up by everyone. We wouldn't have to constantly be saying that while the Australian Professional Standards for Teachers has 1.4 and 2.4, which is Indigenous-focused, all of the standards that are within the Professional Standards for Teachers, Indigenous is represented across them. We wouldn't have to keep having these kind of challenges. So I think trying to come back to policy, again, making sure that people understand that the policy's written, the policy's there. It says that you need to do this. Thank you for sharing your enormous wisdom and gauge with the listeners and share the importance of the Nanga project, but also um, your contribution to Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander women who are representing education. Thank you very much. Our guests today shared their inspiring stories of being Indigenous women working in the education sector and helped us understand what is happening in schools when it comes to teaching Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander education and also, importantly, what needs to be done or perhaps putting the questions out there for you to discuss within your own school context. Thank you to our guests Rosie Payne, Kylie Captain and Associate Professor Melita Hogarth for your contributions. We will post resources and further readings on the University of Melbourne Education website. This podcast was recorded in July 2023. Thank you to our extended podcast production team. This podcast was made at the Faculty of Education at the University of Melbourne.